Good morning and happy Sabbath. Uh, my name is Russell. I'm filling in for Tim. Tim is in Canada. Just kidding, guys. Canada. Don't want to insult our neighbors in the north. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause in our morning. Uh, we want to acknowledge you as our Creator and our Redeemer, and ask that you fill your uh, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts with your Spirit. Uh, so that we may be become prophets for you and uh, sound the warning cry to those who need it. Uh, continue to mold and shape our characters so that, that like Christ, so we can hasten his coming. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are studying Lesson 5 today. Um, I hope that's the right one, because that's the one we're doing. Uh, in the third quarter of quarterly, called the Cry of the Prophets. So from the title alone, I, I had a couple of questions. What is a prophet? What's the general, general accepted definition of what a prophet is? And not, not just Old Testament, but New Testament and all the way up to contemporary times. What, what is a prophet? What's the function of a prophet? Messenger. Okay, a messenger. Um what what are they supposed to message? Well, because you can have good prophets and false prophets, so they can be a me- they're giving the message of whoever is making is giving the you know information. Okay, so we have a distinction between a false prophet and a true prophet. Um, God's prophets. Let, let's let's narrow our focus to God's prophets. What's their what's their purpose? Sometimes, sometimes I deliver a, a message of warning. Okay, sometimes it's a message of comfort. In the years of captivity, God dispatched prophets to um, comfort the children of Israel and uh, let them know that they had not been abandoned or forgotten. Anything else? Messages of reproof. Okay, I, I would put that under the warning umbrella, but um, reproof messages. Okay, there's some some prophets have been gifted with uh, glimpses of the future, good, bad, or indifferent, um, and some are a glimpse, giving glimpses of uh, future in the near term. Some are like Daniel, been giving glimpses of future. All the way to the earth made new. Daniel and John both were given uh, glimpses of the earth made new. We're missing a big one. He shows the character of Christ. Okay. We're missing two big ones then. <laughs> Say again. Predicting the future. Okay. I, well, I think we included that one. What about a what about delivery of a message of hope? I think it's an important one. I think it's a very important one. Giving a message of hope. Um, you'll see a um, in the prophets we look at today. They're delivering warnings of impending doom. They're also delivering uh, messages of hope. They're delivering messages of healing. They're delivering messages of, if you turn from the path you're on, 
these calamities we just outlined will not befall you. So throughout throughout the study today, I want you to think about some, just keep some rhetorical questions in your head. A, we already asked one question, what is a prophet? Uh, are there any differences between Old Testament prophets and in, in, in present day? Uh, what were they crying? The, the lessons titled The Cry of the Prophets. What were they crying about? Uh, is, a, is a contemporary prophet crying anything different than uh, one from several thousand years ago? Today's memory text. He hath shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, how many of you hear that text differently today than you did 10 years ago? I know I do. Sorry, I was, I, was, I was asking for a show of hands on that one. Well, mine was, I was just reading through Deuteronomy, and Moses was giving his last address before he left, you know, mm-hmm. last instructions. And one of the things he said is, I know, after I'm gone... You are going to become a wicked generation. You're going to do all this. And, and I think the prophets really suffered heartache for the people that they were trying to sort of witness to, if you will, or talk to or, or convince. Because not only did he know that he was telling this, and Jesus, same thing, you're telling this information, but you know they're going to make the wrong decision. It's, very, it's got to be heartrending to them. That as much you try as much you can to stem the tide, but they will anyway. And in the case of Moses, for example, Joshua and Caleb, even, is that when this when the twelve guys came back from the promised land and only two of them gave a good report, those two and Moses and all the people who would have said, "Let's go ahead," they also had to suffer forty years in the wilderness along with the people who wouldn't go at first and then changed their mind and would go once they were told not to. But, you know, the prophets suffered tremendously uh, for the lack of people's belief that caused bad mm-hmm. things to happen, through which they suffered too. They were taken into captivity. That All the bad things that happened, because if they'd had their way, none of that would have happened to these people. But they had to suffer for the, their decision. And it must have been just heartrending to see ahead and know for a fact that what you're trying to talk people to, into, you know, choose life and they, you know they're going to choose death. It's got to be just heartrending. Yeah, it kind of gives you a little, a little microcosm of um, what Christ dealt with and has dealt with since before creation, knowing that he created species, they would fall uh, prey to Satan's deception and ultimately form a confederacy with him. And the the... the the cost, the cost to heaven and to Christ Himself of uh, redemption, no, knowing it was all unnecessary. So back to the text. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what does it mean? What is justice? What does it mean to love mercy? How does one walk humbly with God? Why does the Lord require these things of mankind? Both correct. 
Because if we don't, we'll destroy ourselves. And anyone else that we have that kind of influence over. So, what is back to the question? What is justice? My definitions of these terms and my understanding of this text are, are wildly different than they were a decade ago. Justice is doing what's right. Not for any sort of reward. You do what's right because it's right. Because it's the design for life. What does it mean to love mercy? I know that um, one thing that turned my mind around was when Tim said, what is justice for a man who's been murdered? In our vernacular, we would say the murderer needs to really get punished. No, uh, but in and the murderer needs to be murdered. Yeah. The, that, that's a that's a level one form of justice. Yeah, but in God's God's preferred view, justice is giving that man back his life again. It was taken away. Justice is giving it back. And well, for eternity, I would say. <laughs> Just, justice's resurrection of the man murdered and rest, and transformation and healing of the murderer. Story of King Manasseh. I mean, Manasseh was one of the worst guys in all the Old Testament. And yet he turned around after his captivity and became a man of God. You know, I can't remember which prophet he killed. Elijah, Elisha, one of those guys. You know, had him sawn in two. I thought it was Isaiah. One of those guys, you know, you can imagine him meeting him in heaven, yeah, and, and hoping he doesn't have a pruning fork in his hand, right, or something. You're twice the man I remember you. Yeah. So you know, I mean, there is, that is that is truly justice. Yes, is to know that the person who persecuted you, killed you, is now a, a child of God. Now restored. And thank God for the book of Chronicles, the second Chronicles. Because I think both Kings and Chronicles tell the story of Manasseh. The book of Kings says nothing about his restoration. It's only in Chronicles. Toward the end of Chronicles where it says, And Manasseh humbled himself before the Lord. And the Lord recognized it and restored him. And, and then Manasseh spent the remaining years of his life trying to un, undo the damage that he'd done. But it was too much. I, I saw a fascinating, fascinating study this past week, which I sent to Tim. This was done in the aftermath of the... Um, the 2011, 10-11, the, the quote, Arab Spring. Remember the, the upheavals in Egypt and Tunisia and um, Libya? They, the researchers found that it only takes 10% of a population to hold to a belief system in order for that belief system become the majority belief system. So if you can get 10% of a population to to become so settled into a belief system that they cannot be moved, then that belief system will mushroom to a majority belief system. Now this works for better or for worse. So if you believe in a destructive belief system, that can become the majority belief system. I texted Tim. I said, "Hey, we only need to we only need to convince ten percent of Christianity that God is love." 
and uh, he messaged back. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Ellen White quote where she says the uh, the end events will be rapid ones. Ten percent seems it seems doable, doesn't it? For good or bad. For good or bad. That's right. What does the Lord require? Why does the Lord require that we love justice, love mercy, that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before Him? So that we might display Him in front of others. It goes back to design law. <laughs> Thank you. It got built into the original design that we take care of each other, that we love each other, that we, we are humble and kind and he requires that because he requires just like breathing. Thank you. That's right. It's like saying, why does the respiration require breathing? Because that's how it's designed. That's right. You're exactly right. That's how life's designed. That's why it's required. It's not required to appease any anger. It's not required to eradicate uh, deeds from books in heaven. It's not required because... It's an arbitrary uh, uh, set of requirements from an arbitrary God. It's required because that's how life's designed. And it will not be instituted by a police officer on every corner. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It, it, It will not be policed or mandated, nor will it be changed by a church committee or a compliance committee. So what's what sort of what is the solid thread that runs throughout of the Old Testament books of the prophets and all of Scripture for that matter? Well, what's what is a consistent thread running from Genesis to the end of Revelation? Seek to do evil, learn to do well. Okay. I put before you life and death. Choose life. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. It seems like the natural tendency for us is to stray. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, we see a lot of straying and God's appealing to come back, you know, and yeah, the church or with, with nations, with whatever, it just, it, it disintegrates and um, is called of love and entreaty to come back and to and lots of metaphors, he, the, the, the wayward child metaphor, the, um, the unfaithful spouse metaphor, the, the, the stubborn donkey metaphor. The, the metaphors of that are, are endless. And yeah, the, the, the thread is, you've been running from me since, since Eden. I'm the only one that can heal you. Turn to me and I will heal you. All right, so keeping all that in mind, uh, at the bottom bottom paragraph of the Sabbath lesson, as we will see, too, that among the sins and evils that they warned the leaders and people against, one of the biggest was the oppression of the poor, the needy, and the helpless among them. Yes, worshiping idols was bad. Yes, following false religious practices was bad. But, yes, taking advantage of the weak and poor was worthy of condemnation as well. Uh, thoughts? Dividing behavior up into little parts. I know. I, or we're, we're complaining about the symptoms and not the disease. Was the oppression of the poor really the disease, or was it a symptom of the disease? 
Come on. What was the real problem? Selfishness. <laughs> yeah, overwhelming selfishness. And was it worthy of condemnation? Did God condemn Israel? Yes. Did he? Did he condemn them or did he counsel them? I think you see examples of both in, in which he's using everything he has to try to draw us back to him. Okay, well maybe my definition of condemnation is a little... Well, like condemning what they do, and that's condemning. Look, you're doing this, you're doing that. Don't be like this. And now finally, you have to let them be taken away into captivity. So you can see how other people rule compared to how I do and make a better decision. Okay, I guess I would put that under the the counseling or the threatening. I mean, he certainly did threaten, but the whole condemnation thing, that word gets used. When you think of Christ, he said, neither do I condemn you. I mean, Christ didn't. He didn't condemn the woman. He didn't condemn. He said, you "Go, I need to go and live better." That was the only quote condemnation of her lifestyle was go and live, go and sin no more. And that was one method he used, but he also used condemning. You do this, like for example, you take pieces of wood, you cut them in half. You, chop, you use one for fire, and then you cover the other with silver and gold and worship it. I'm condemning that behavior is foolish. You're condemning wood. I mean, you're worshiping wood. So in a way, I mean, I think we're probably using semantics to say the same thing. That could be counseling, but it could be condemning. How stupid can you be <laughs> to take pieces of wood and make a fire with one place and worship in the other? And he's always, in that respect, condemning the choices they're making and saying, you're making the wrong choice. That's a wrong choice. And Okay, I'm, I'm okay with condemning the, condemning the choice, condemning the mindset, but not condemning the individual. Hey, I'm, that's fair. Uh, Sunday's lesson, the recurring Sunday's lesson, the recurring call to justice. The, left, the lesson references Israel's demand for a king in First Samuel chapter eight. Consider the broader context. What was happening before Israel demanded a king? Eli and his sons were reprobates. More the sons, but yeah, we could argue that Eli was a very permissive father and a glutton. So you guys remember the story? Let's see, it wasn't Hophni and Phinehas. That that was... uh, Whose sons were those? It was same. Those it was Hophni and Phineas. Yes, you're right. Because when they got killed, he he fell over and broke his neck. So he had appointed his sons to function as priests. Read read church leadership. But uh, instead, they didn't follow. In his follow his ways, which is a, a quote from scripture, they accepted bribes. We can also read that as a misappropriation of tithe dollars, and they perverted justice. You can read they formed compliance committees. That's what precipitated the call for a king. It was a perversion of church leadership. 
Let that breathe a little bit. Because at that time, church leadership was the only... That, that was national leadership. And the, the, the citizens of Israel, the children of Israel, saw this perversion, this misuse of their, of their tithe monies. They saw uh, bribes being taken. They saw favors being granted. They saw other perversions. And they thought, you know, monarchy looks better. First Samuel two twenty two and onward, it talks about some of their sins. They were even sleeping with the women who were the keepers of the temple. Exactly, they're functioning as the temple prostitute. Is it too much of a stretch to wonder that if Samuel's sons had kept, had been faithful to um, maybe to Samuel's Samuel's methodology and more to the point to God's methodologies, that the, the citizens would have been less likely to ask for a king? I don't think it's too much of a stretch. God correctly diagnoses their condition. And to Samuel, fear not. It's not you they're abandoning, it's me. So God gave them what they wanted. And he picked their he picked their first two kings. And exactly what Samuel predicted what God told Samuel to predict, exactly what he predicted, came true. They were heavily taxed. Their men, their young men, were conscripted for service in a military that needed to be formed. And things went swirling down the hopper. Yes. We often pay a lot of attention to Samuel as a little boy, and he, he, he remonstrated with Eli and whatnot. But there's also a prophet that came to Eli even before that and condemned his behavior and his son's behavior and, said, and, and tried to correct the behavior even before child Sam, the child came to him. It, there's multiple people that you know, had happened. And so it wasn't just... You, you look at the patience of God in that situation, which here the priest and his sons were doing terrible things. And... He tried multiple ways of coming to Eli. Did I, did I get this mixed up? Was it, was it not Samuel's sons that were the priests, or was it Eli's sons? Both. Both. In this case, it's Samuel and his sons were Joel. And okay, so his sons were what? Uh, Joel was one of them, and Abijah is the second one. Okay, so Hophni and Phinehas were um, Eli's sons. Got it. Thank you. Samuel, in spite of seeing what he saw, was not any better at being a corrective influence. Yeah, uh, Ellen White has some interesting comments on the nature of his character and, and, and prophets and kings, which I don't have memorized, but look them up. They're, they're astute. Uh, Monday's lesson from Amos. <laughs> Again, quoting from the lesson, he, meaning Amos, begins on a popular note, listing off the surrounding nations, Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, and detailing their crimes, outrages, and atrocities for which God will punish them. 
It's easy to imagine that the Israelites applauding these indictments of their enemies, enemies, particularly as many of the crimes of these nations have been directed against the Israelites themselves. Uh, and again, then Amos moves a little closer to home, declaring God's judgment against the people of Judah, Israel's southern neighbors, in their now separated kingdoms. Speaking on behalf of God, Amos cites their rejection of God, their disobedience to his commands, and the punishments that would come to them. You want to see a pattern here? What sort of punishments did God meet out for the nations that were opposing Israel? And what sort of punishments did he meet out to Israel? Were they punished at all? Sequentially, the Israel, the northern ten tribes, were attacked piecemeal and hauled off in various things. It's interesting that it didn't happen like in Judah where Babylon came in all at once and, and took everyone away. It, the northern ten tribes got multiple attempts at, at correction. Yeah, the Assyrians just, yeah, like you said, bit by bit, whittled the death by a thousand cuts. But this, this idea that the lesson presents that God is punishing them, I, I reject that. He's disciplining them in an effort. He was letting them go to the choices that they had made, the very clear choices that they had made. But to the people that it's happening to, it feels like punishment. Where is punishment? Punishment is inherent in crime. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sin brings its own. Sin pays its own wage, and that wage is punitive. But the lesson here says quite clearly the atrocities for which God will punish them. I reject that. There's a. Yeah. Exactly. Saul killed Saul. The um, there's obviously a mindset by the authors and editors of the lesson through here that. You know, if you step out of line, God will punish you. And to be fair, 20 years ago, I was right on board with that. I, I, I had no problem with that mentality because I knew a different God. I believe in a different God now. The God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth. Yes? You can see where... God is saying, look, I'm letting go of these nations. This is what happens when I step back. Okay, if you won't learn from them, maybe you'll learn from your sister nation. Okay, watch what happens there. Can you learn from them, or do I have to let you go as well? Can you please learn from other people's situations? Because I don't want to have to let you go, and maybe... We are so stubborn sometimes that we don't learn from God's other's examples. We have to learn through the hard knocks. And he was trying and trying and trying to say, Look, Judah, I've had to let this happen. I've had to let this happen. I don't want to do it with you. But in order to save you, I will do it if I have to. I think that's well said. Well, we, we see, try to say, how is Jesus of the Old Testament... Jesus of the New Testament being the same being. He just became Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament was who we understand Jesus to be. And because he's the communicative 
part of God to us. And so you look at how can these be the same guy? But Jesus, I think, is God's preferred method of dealing with people. And the Old Testament is God's uh, had to deal with people where they were. You know, it's just like when you have a child, you would prefer to deal with them as, you know, a rational adult human being. But they're one year old or two years old. They can't get that kind of communication. They don't get it. They have to be shown discipline or instruction or whatever, some other way they can understand it. And I think we misinterpret God because we think the Old Testament is how, or the harsh parts of the Old Testament was how God would have preferred to treat people. But he he wouldn't. He would right. often. He says, "Don't be like a horse that needs a bit and bridle to do what you're supposed to do. You know, just do this because it's the right thing to do." But we see a God dealing with people who are immature, who had terrible examples, slaves. They understood things very differently than a mature, uh, understanding adult Christian today would. And so we we judge God because we look at the way He dealt with them. That, that's horrible. And I think Jesus is the showing that would that really wasn't the way I would have preferred to handle it, but I just had to because of who they were. And when you look at Jesus, then you see that's I think more of God's preferred method. And so then, if you look at Jesus and then go back and look in the Old Testament, you have uh, I think a, a greater understanding of the difficulties God had in dealing with people of that understanding sure. level and response level. And you gain maybe more sympathy for all he had to go through to try to, you know, channel these people in the right direction, keep them from killing themselves or whatever. And so, but we judge God wrongly and harshly. But we do. If we don't think deeper into the Bible and you just casually read through the Old Testament, like some people I know have really got a hostile impression of God based on just reading the Old Testament. Guilty. (laughs) Well, pretty much for 30 years. If you don't take a deeper look, you don't understand that that is not, that's God having to meet them at where they were, not where God would prefer to. Right. How many of you remember the level, different levels of moral development? What's level, level one? All right. Reward and punishment. If I, if I, Behave correctly, I get rewarded. If I behave incorrectly, I get punished. That's the children of Israel coming out of out of Egypt. <laughs> because if they didn't meet their brick quota, they got beat. If they met their brick quota, they didn't get beat. That's reward and punishment mentality. For 250 years. I mean, that's as long as the U.S. has been a nation. That's a long time to have a, a group of people enslaved with that mindset and multiple genera- generation after generation after generation born into slavery where your only understanding of life is A, it's short, and B, if I make the bricks, I don't get beat. What's level two? The marketplace exchange. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's a transactional relationship. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Do you know how many you know how many marriages and relationships function at that level? And we wonder why there's a 
50, a minimum of a 50% divorce rate, they function on a transactional level. What's number three? I struggle with remembering three, too. It's community standards. Yeah. The right is, uh, what's right is developed by the uh, consensus of the crowd. If a majority says it, it must be right. Community mores. Yes. Number four. This is codified law and order. This is where we've really come to an advanced society and we've written laws on books. With that, we've, and we've reached the pinnacle of moral development there, right? Ideally, sets of imposed laws should be a reflection of the design law that they underpin, that underpins them, excuse me. Speed limits should be a manifestation of the laws of momentum, Newtonian laws of momentum. Because you can, you can mathematically dissect a car wreck with skid coefficients of rubber on asphalt and friction coefficients of uh, asbestos brake pads on stainless, on steel. Force equals MA. Mass times acceleration, you can predict how much damage will happen when you do 60 in a school zone and hit a child. Ideally, speed limits, the imposed law should be a reflection and a function of the natural law underpinning it. That has devolved. What's level five? Level five moral development. Love. That's where it begins. This level five, six, and seven is where a concern for others overrides a concern for self. So level five is the beginning of, of a love for others. I, I'm not going to speed in the school zone. And not, not just because I'm concerned that my insurance rates will go up if I hit a kid. I don't want to hit a kid. I'm concerned for the child that's not paying attention when they're crossing the street. Level six is now, we're now at an understanding of how reality in life actually functions, how it's designed to function. And we cooperate in harmony with those laws, those design laws. And we do it not for a hope of reward, not for a fear of punishment. We do it because we understand that that's just how life is designed to operate. And then level seven is the, the cooperating friend of God. We understand the design for life. We love others more than ourselves, And we... we cannot keep quiet about it. We want to share this with those who don't understand this. We, we cooperate and become f- functioning uh, part of the machinery to hasten Christ's return. Um, back to your point, Sophia. Um, one of my favorite sayings is that you, you said that there's sometimes a hope that 
in the Old Testament that uh, certain of God's children will learn from the lessons uh, of others of God's children. One of my favorite sayings is that uh, the average man learns from his own mistakes, the wise man learns from the mistakes of others, and the fool does neither. I don't know who it's attributed to, but... Uh, In my personal journey, though, I play out a mixture of one through five. I know. Yeah. I, I'm with you, brother. Trust me. Uh, when, you, when, you see, when you see a news story about um, a guy who's convicted for uh, molesting children... You think, well, he needs to be castrated with a baseball and put in prison and let him let, let him get a dose of his own medicine. I mean, there's just that visceral uh, vigilante response that, that's not, even if I'd never seen a vigilante movie in my life, which I've seen too many of, there, there's still this this. It's almost in, in our DNA that, that we, we want to see that doing to them. In the Old Testament, it, we also read it, tooth for a tooth and eye for an eye. Yeah, and we, and we, we read it, and then, well, it's in Scripture, and God said it. That, that, that must mean that that is, that's his, that is the highest standard that we can attain, is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, bruise for a bruise, and a life for a life. In my understanding, he had to he allowed that rule because sometimes people you would steal and they'd shoot you, yeah, instantly kill you, right? And that was to try to help them be more like God and say, okay, you stole my sheep, you restore it. You know, you 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 don't kill people just because. They made a simple mistake, and that's what that, they used to do. That's exactly right. Saying, okay, okay, you don't understand, let's break it down to where you might understand, but this isn't the ideal. Yeah, and again, going back to a quarter of a millennium in slavery, think about how cheap life was to these people. They saw, they saw friends and family members beat to death in front of them, they had to keep making bricks. Life was cheap and short. It's, it's something, I don't think it's, it's something I can't comprehend. Be, being Having the, the fortune of being born in a country that values, ostensibly values freedom. It's, it's inglorious past notwithstanding. Jesus tried to correct it. Again, here's Jesus saying, you know, I for night, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah. This is a step in the right direction. If they ask you for this, give them double. If they ask right. your coat, give them your cloak. If they ask for this, go the two miles. He's he's actually sort of now trying to reverse the idea, hoping they've moved beyond that slavery mentality to the point where they can comprehend that even if injustice is done for you, it's better to allow injustice than to take revenge like that. Well said. Uh, Tuesday's lesson, Micah. The lesson recommends we read Micah 2 and 3 to gain some context for the state of Israel and Judah. Uh, I've selected a few tidbits. Woe to those who plan iniquity and to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. 
They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes, and they rob them of their inheritance. Micah 2, 2. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? This is Micah 3, 1. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort what's right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. This is Micah 3.9. Notice the pattern? Notice in the news. And in these texts. (laughs) Who's God calling out here? The leaders. He's calling out leadership. The rulers and leaders. Predominantly church leaders. And right, right preceding our memory text. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Yeah, transactional. Exactly. Oh, if I bring rivers of 10,000 rivers of oil, God will bless me. That's exactly right. And then, and then God, and God says, no. Oh, man, he's shown you what's good. That's the difference between what God's showing and the, show that, the shows that men try to put on to each other about how good they are. Yeah. Yeah, I love that he's calling out national and church leadership. And, and it, our class is taking grief. Dr. Jennings is taking grief. In fact, he's had events canceled because he has the stones to stand up and call out church leadership and to call out the direction that they're heading. I applaud and affirm him for that. He's accused of hating the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of it. No, he weeps for the the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I think by every definition of the word he is. He's delivering a, a message, a pertinent message, the the second Elijah message to people that need to hear it. How, how, yeah, I mean, I think by every definition the word he fits that role. So we've been reading minor prophets here. Are there any minor ones? So when you finally have an effect that is uh, generational and and uh, totally national, you know, sort of international, that that might make you an, a major prophet at that point, right? I, you know, I don't know the distinction between the major and minor prophets. It may just be the amount of words that were written. I guess what, what I'm saying is that there are so many semantics involved, you know, when we talk about the effects people are having on each other. You know, Tim Tim's motives are for a correction in course. 
he sees the iceberg, just like the Titanic mm-hmm. did up in the, in the crow's nest did. He's trying to turn the ship. It, it, it's, it's really a simple matter of, of um, seizing the moment to make a difference. And that's what he's doing. Wednesday's lesson, Ezekiel. On Monday's lesson, in the, in the second paragraph, it says, Amos was quite open in admitting his lack of qualifications for being a prophet. What are the qualifications for being a prophet? I, I mean, he listed himself as far as what he did and did not be or whatever, etc. But really, someone whose qualifications for being a prophet, you look at the prophet that we have, that we, at least some of us accept within our church, as being a prophet. Right. What were her qualifications? Uneducated. A third grade education and a willingness to be led. A willingness. Yes, a willingness to be led by the Holy Spirit. And also a willingness to go and speak the same message and then present it to others. And they were, had been unwilling That's to, right. to do the job. Two others so, approached before her. But they did have a school of the prophets, oddly enough. In Elisha and Elijah's time, at least, they talk about a bunch of people being schooled into being prophets. So I found that interesting. I mean, is that how do you school somebody into being a prophet? We'll come to Dallas in the third third weekend of uh, of January 2020, and we'll uh, we'll show you. But, you know, we we often have this this idea of prophecy as being something other than what it is, and you're speaking for God. That's right. So, anytime a person is speaking for God, they are being a prophet. He tells us what. Correct. We, they have to have the courage to begin with, and the ability to draw people to them so that they'll listen. It takes great courage. I think that, um, I don't even think they have to have the courage. I I think they just have to have the willingness. God will supply them with the courage. And I think that, (sighs) yes, there are some speakers that are more charismatic than others, presenting the same message, but the message itself has its own charisma. The message itself is its, is its own good news. Its own, the gospel is its own good news. But God will also, I mean, you have different people giving the same message, but those people, some can reach a certain... Right. People will identify with that way of talking. Other people right. will identify with this way of talking. We have four gospels because God knows that people think differently, they need to be approached differently, they want different pieces of information, and so there needs to be more people willing to just say what the Lord's telling them, because it takes all kinds. We have all kinds of minds that need to listen, and maybe they can hear it from this perspective, where they couldn't really get it from that perspective very well. That's right. God's truth, with a capital T, is bigger than... Me as an individual can can comprehend or share. You know, with our with our multi um, multiple threads of of truth, our evidence based uh, approach for divining truth, where we my understanding of scripture is different than your understanding of scripture. My understanding of science is different than your understanding of science, and certainly my experience is different than your experience. And yet, collectively. All, all of our understandings of those things 
multiply exponentially what we can glean as truth. We have scrolled down the road here that <clears throat> has a statue noting there being a school of the prophet, school of the prophets as well. And um, what's the difference? You're not aware of the, the statue in the back of the campus? Over here in Southern? Oh, yeah. No. Where it shows Elijah receiving or passing it on from, how does that work? Elijah. The mantle. Yes. There's Elijah passing the mantle. Oh, okay, no, no. This is me. I never go back there. It's a big, beautiful, new Granite. statue. Oh, okay. Three or four years old. Yeah. All right. It's, it's been there a long time, yeah. No, it hasn't been. Oh, it's been there years. It's been probably 10, 15 Oh, years. finish it. Maybe they're just finishing it. No, it's, it's never been finished. And it never got the press yeah. or whatever that it would seem to have. Yeah. And uh, Anyway, that being said, what makes, makes a school of the prophet? What, what is it that makes one of an authentic school of the prophet? My first inclination is that whatever school is delivering the truth. Okay, that's a, that's a nice term. Yes. But is it, does it mean that this is a truth developed by many, many people in a groupthink sort of way? I know. Yeah, no. We're not trying. Not their truth, but actual truth. We are not trying to do that in this class. Tim has said many, many times. Right. He is not trying to develop a group think in this in this uh, class. Just trying to get the group to think. Trying to teach us to think, not not teach us how to think, not what to think. Right. But it's also not your truth and my truth. Although my experience enlightens tr tr the capital T truth yes. in a way that's maybe more unique and that I can share. But how far and wide does that circle go? How do we how do we reveal ourselves to be keepers of the capital T truth? I don't know if I would claim that we be we claim to be keepers of the capital T truth. That, one of us has that experience. We've just said how we kind of in a in a community we reveal more to each other. We're stronger together than we are as an individual. You know, capital T truth is infinite. So, uh, it, any truth that any truth that harmonizes with the multiple threads of evidence should be. Considered to be true, in my, in my experience. And what it says about God, it seems like that would be yes. a place to start and then to look, analyze it and look and see how it weaves together the, the threads of, of experience, science, and scripture. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, I think that to say prophet, it's a tough thing to say because I think people have considered themselves prophets that may or may not be. And I think we have to be judges. We have to be discerning to learn what that is and not just say, well, you're on the pathway, therefore um, it's all good. I, I struggle with that. My, my experience is that some people have a narrow, a narrow definition of a prophet. They, they narrow that definition down to only someone who's predicted the future or accurately predicted the future. And uh, being a prophet is, is much bigger. It's a much bigger umbrella than that, my humble opinion. And Tim defines it as, as a messenger of God, someone who's delivering a message, an appropriate message at a certain time to a certain group, revealing tr a, a truth about God and his character. Wendell? One of my favorite um, passages from Desire of Ages kind of goes along with this. Um, Desire of Ages, page 74. 
talking about Christ's work. His work began in consecrating the lowly trade of the craftsmen who toil for the daily bread. He was doing God's service just as much when laboring at the carpenter's bench as when working miracles for the multitude. And every youth who follows Christ's example of faithfulness and obedience in his lowly home may claim those words spoken of him by the Father through the Holy Spirit. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighted. And hope it's not just youth. Uh, real quick, I want to move to Wednesday's lesson on Ezekiel. Um, how many of you have read Ezekiel in depth? It's a fascinating book. When you consider the lengths that he went to in cooperation with God in order to deliver a message of warning and reproof, it is, it's nothing short of staggering. Just some highlights. He built an entire copy of the city of Jerusalem in the dirt, walls, buttresses, fortresses, and then he laid siege to it. He built siege ramps. He's trying to get their attention that this is what's coming. Then the Lord told him to lie on his left side for 390 days. With a very limited portion of food, too. Yes. Only a certain amount of food. A certain amount of food that had to, that God wanted him to cook using human dung as the fire. And he, and he negotiated that. Right. <laughs> exactly. He said, um, I, and he was offended. I've never had anything unclean. And the Lord relented and said, all right, use animal dung. Okay. Yeah, for, for well, only for forty days. Only for a little more than a month. So he three hundred ninety days, fifteen months, give or take, on his left side, symbolizing the three hundred ninety years that uh, Israel would be in captivity with the uh, with the Assyrians. Uh, how many of us would be willing to lay on our on one side for fifteen months in order to in order to get the attention of some of our brothers and sisters who are headed down a pathway of destruction? I have to find a new means of delegation. I mean, I just I just marvel at the patience and the commitment, and not only of Ezekiel but God Himself. Yes. One of the other things that he did, though, too, he cut off his. His clothes mm-hmm. placed down, yep, and his butt, butt exposed, and walked around preaching, yes, with his butt exposed, yep. Yeah, the level of commitment of this guy is something else. From the lesson, uh, interesting enough, though, the answer is more complicated than just that. Consider Ezekiel's description. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He's addressing Israel. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. This should be a familiar text. Though clearly the Lord was not going to overlook the other forms of depravity found in the city, Ezekiel's focus here was on the economic injustice and the lack of care of those in need. Could it be that in the eyes of God, these economic sins were just as bad as the sexual ones? 
Well, the core of it is self-centered. Could it? Yes, thank you. Could it be that the economic and sexual depravity are related? That they're linked, connected, that they're symptomatic? Could it be that they just hold hands and skip across meadows together? They're both symptoms of the same disease. Okay. Any other thoughts before we wrap it up? It helps to think on new paradigms to develop new energy, new thoughts. I, I would amend that to say it helps to think on correct paradigms. Right. New paradigms can be as destructive as the old ones. and It helps to think on correct paradigms. Gracious Father, thank you for the, this opportunity to worship in uh, freedom in the manner that we our consciences dictate. Thank you for the prophets, not only of the Old and New Testaments, but of the present day that you have blessed us with, to, uh, to discern and dissect more of your truth with a capital T. Uh, I want to thank you for this class and ask that you continue to bless this class uh, individually and corporately and bring us back safely in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.